Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. What do you get if you divide the circumference of a pumpkin by its diameter? What? Pumpkin pie. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Sundance winning director Justin Simeon. That'll help break the ice. His debut film, Dear White People, comes out this week, and coming up, he'll answer your etiquette questions. Also, we'll speak with actor Joel Edgerton. You've seen him in The Great Gatsby and the cult hit Warrior, among other roles. He wrote and stars in the new thriller, Felony. Plus, the pop singer Banks provides a dinner party soundtrack. Scent expert Mandy Aftel tells us about the most expensive smell on earth. And I have a hot grilled cheese parachuted into my mouth. Just another week at the office, folks. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. A major shift in the Catholic Church's attitudes toward gays and lesbians. A huge drop on top of four consecutive days of stock market losses. If you have an iTunes account, Bono, the frontman of U2, has just apologized to you. Oops. I'm sorry about that. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Erin McCann. She is assistant news editor at The Guardian newspaper. Erin, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? Well, I have a chuckle of a story to share with you this week. (laughs) I'm already chuckling. It's about a comedy club in Spain that has decided to charge per laugh, charges audience (laughs) per every chuckle and guffaw and smile using facial recognition software. Is that a good idea? I mean, it's probably a profitable idea, theoretically. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) If the comics are funny. If they're funny, yeah. So how does it work? So there's software on tablets that are on the back of the seat in front of you, and it's basically scanning your face. Each laugh is charged at... 0.3 0.3 euro, which is about 38 cents, 40 cents, about that. Uh, they cap you at 24 euros, which will be about $31. You know, it's it's like going out for a night and paying for three or four drinks. Yeah. That This sounds like technology that public radio, if we put that in during our show, we wouldn't have to do pledge drives anymore. I think the shows would be funnier. <laughs> <laughs> I think this could also reward indigestion, though, right? I mean, if it's just looking at your face, how does it know whether you're laughing or whether you're... You, if you have hiccups, you could end up spending a fortune. Actually, yes. <laughs> but this also has... It, doesn't this potentially have the reverse effect that you would try not to laugh so you could get out of there <laughs> spending less? The poor comic who's just sitting there, why aren't you laughing? laughing at me. Not, I'm not aware of what's happening. I'm doing all I can. If they use this method of payment in other places, this could be, you know, for example, like at a rock concert, pay per headbang, <laughs> or rom-com, pay per tier. You just, you end up with, with audiences around the world standing stoically. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Our entire That's right. way of life changes. Uh, Aaron McCann, I think that covers it. Thanks for the small talk. Thank you. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a jacuzzi full of booze. Relaxing, but bad for the skin. First, Very the bad. history. On October 14th, 2003, one of the most infamous errors in baseball history happened. And it was made by the fans. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. For Chicago Cubs fans, it was supposed to be the best day ever. For a fan named Steve Bartman, it turned out to be the worst. That day at Wrigley Field, the Cubs were hosting the Florida Marlins in Game 6 of the National League playoffs. By the eighth inning, they were ahead three-zip, just five more outs, and the Cubs would win their first pennant in 58 years. The Marlins' Luis Castillo hit a foul ball, 
It sailed toward Cubs outfielder Moises Alou. He went to catch it. Reaching into the stands. When Steve Bartman, watching from the stands, reached out to catch the ball himself and knocked it away. What might have been an out stayed a foul. Suddenly, the Cubs unraveled. They gave up eight runs and lost the game. But instead of blaming the team, the crowd turned on Bartman. They hurled insults and garbage at him until security had to usher him away. Cop cars surrounded his home to protect his family while he went into hiding for days. The governor joked about putting him in the witness relocation program. The Cubs went on to lose the playoffs, but they handled the Bartman situation like champs. Players told the public not to blame him for their mistakes, and the team released a statement saying he'd only done, quote, what every fan who comes to a ballpark tries to do. Just this July, Chicago Tribune columnist John Cass suggested new signs at Wrigley should read, Steve Bartman, we're sorry. Please forgive us. As for Bartman, he is said to remain a Cubs fan, though you'll never hear him say so himself. Since releasing a statement back in 03, he's avoided all media. He doesn't grant interviews, he's never made a buck from his fame, and he never returned to Wrigley Field. The Cubs have now gone 69 years without winning a pennant. So that's the history lesson. Now it's time for a drink to go along with it. The people of Chicago are going to need a drink. I'm joined by Anna Marie Segoy. She is the cocktail guru at The Drifter in Chicago. Anna Marie, what cocktail did that story inspire you to make? Well, I wanted to come up with something that was very um, hateful. Because if I just went for <laughs> baseball, that could apply to anything, right? But what's special about this story so much hate, right? For a team that doesn't even really win, you know? It just shows that loyalty right there. It's ugly. I, I'll give you that. I never thought about a hateful cocktail. <laughs> well, I hadn't either until today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what's in your hateful drink? Okay, so I started with um, Chicago's most famous spirit here. It's called Leatherby Malort. Malort is a type of Swedish schnapps. Okay. Very bitter, very disgusting to a lot of people, but it's uh, very beloved here. So what else? Mezcal, which is mm. very polarizing as well. People love it or hate it. I personally love mm-hmm. it, but mm-hmm. very smoky, very layered and complex. And most people, uh, it makes them want to puke. So mm-hmm. I had to include that one as well. <laughs> uh-huh. um, then I wanted to make it kind of mojito style, which everybody loves mojitos. However, you know who doesn't love them? bartenders. Oh, yeah, because they take so long to make. They do. And any good bartender will never complain about that, but secretly. Oh, we're getting the real stuff here. I like it. So uh, adding a little citrus to make it delicious and then a spritz of scotch on top. It has that really nice leathery, smoky flavors that, you know, I think of when I think of a baseball or a, or a baseball mitt. And what are you calling this hateful drink? I am calling it Latin, which means the hate in uh, French, which is another kind of reviled culture (laughs) here in America. Although I gotta say, I love them. And Brendan, the more I learn about Steve Bartman, the more I admire him. The guy's been offered tens of thousands of dollars just for his autograph, Mm. turned it down, turned down offers to appear in commercials. He just won't play ball with the media, that's what you're saying. In a manner of speaking, that's what I'm saying. Had to be said, people. It didn't, really. You can find all of our cocktail recipes (laughs) at dinnerpartydownload.org. 
So we've made small talk, had a drink, now for some music to play. And here with that is the musician Banks. Her dark R&B sound made her an online favorite, and last month her debut album Goddess was a top 20 hit. She's on tour now with a stop this weekend at the Treasure Island Music Festival. Here she is with the party playlist. Hi, my name is Banks, and I have been asked to put together songs I would play at a dinner party, so I'm excited to share them with everybody. Here is my dinner party soundtrack. If I had a dinner party, I would want it to feel moody and a little bit sexy, and I think this song is that. The Motion by Drake featuring Sampha. It's not me and you, it's not me and you. You're reckless and you know it, they don't lie like I do. Say you're moving on, well I guess that's just the motion. I guess that's just the motion. It's one of my favorite songs by Drake, and I just love Sampha so much. He's uh, based out of the UK. One of the most soulful singers, I think, that is currently living on this planet. Just the two of them together, their flavors combining, and, you know, the melody of the chorus is just so simple and soft. My dinner party would be a big, long wooden table with lots of flavorful people, dim lighting, smoke, and witches in the background stirring up some sort of hypnotized spell on you. (laughs) Number two is called 557, and it's by a band named Movement. They're from Australia, and they're actually opening for me on this tour. first time I heard this song, I was actually on my tour bus, and it was in the middle of the night, and I couldn't sleep because the road was so bumpy, and I put it on, and I was just, like, in shock by it. Oh, it is so good. I mean, the singer of this band, his name's Lewis. His voice is so crunchy, and... That's how I want my voice to always sound crunchy. It's like a voice with all the best type of character, you know, emotion with grit, with layers. You can feel different moods, different thoughts within one word, different tones within one note. They know I'm like their biggest fan. I have no shame with that stuff and they have the cute little Australian accents. It's great. (laughs) The third track I think I would play would be by an artist named Majid Jordan. It's called A Place Like This. Majid Jordan is a duo from Canada. One of them sings and one of them produces, and they are very intriguing to me. It's a difficult place when it gets like this. It kind of goes with my witch theme too. It says, Your wish, my command. Your wish, my command. It's good, it's inviting. It'll be inviting my guests at the dinner party to just get loose and hang with each other. I love people's brains. I love getting to know how people think. So I feel like rather than asking the questions at a dinner party, I would probably be very observant 
happy until I were to meet a particular person, a very intriguing person. <laughs> So we're gonna close out my dinner party soundtrack with one of my own songs. It's called And I Drove You Crazy. And I drove you crazy, and I drove you crazy. It repeats the entire song pretty much. And then the beat comes in and it just keeps doing it. <laughs> I play it at my live shows and everybody sings the And I Drove You Crazy part with me. It's like meditative almost. It's kind of weird like that. A dinner party soundtrack from Banks. Her new album is called Goddess. And her tour takes her to the Treasure Island Music Festival in San Francisco this weekend. All right, time for a break. But coming up, etiquette advice from Justin Simeon, director of the Sundance winning Dear White People. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, movie star Joel Edgerton breakdances and grilled cheese sandwiches literally fall from the sky. It's a magical humdinger of a show. I think I agree, though no one's ever really explained to me what a humdinger is. Uh, But first, time for an etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is filmmaker Justin Simeon. He wrote and directed his debut called Dear White People. It's a funny and provocative movie about a group of black students struggling to define their identities in a mostly white private university. It hits theaters this week, but it's already generated a ton of interest. At Sundance, it won him a special jury award for breakthrough talent. And Justin, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. Do you get a medal, by the way, from the jury? Does Robert Redford make you coffee after that? Like what? He, what's... he didn't make me coffee. He made me a nice chamomile tea. Oh, oh of nice. course. Uh, rubbed my feet. It was really sweet. Wow. wow. Uh, the Redford rub down I've the heard red, about it. that's what they call it and yeah. it's lovely actually so you this <laughs> let's talk about your movie dear white people okay. you started writing this movie because in school you found yourself in the same situation as these characters you've called it being a black face in a sea of white and all these characters <laughs> deal with that situation differently which character were you um, I definitely, I started school Lionel. The shy journalism student. Yeah, I was really intimidated by the other black kids in the Black Student Union. Uh, they just seemed so much cooler and blacker than me. And uh, But I also like didn't quite fit in, in the general student population. Mm. You know, people hadn't really spent a lot of face time with black people before, and mm. so... There was a lot of educational moments. <laughs> um, but by the time I, I left, I was much more Sam. I was much more militant. I found, you know, I found my place within the Black Student Union. And Sam is a more activist. She's a, yeah, she's, she's more of, a, of the revolutionary uh, in the film. But you've said actually that you, you emerged from college more like her, but that that wasn't you either. No, no. I think it probably took me until maybe last year to even begin the process of sort of like integrating, you know, all of the different personalities in my head. That's kind of my question is, I mean, the movie deals with that a lot. Absolutely. Each character in the movie behaves like a different kind of black person depending on the group that they're with, and they're trying to unite all these personalities. How did you do it? Um, 
And you know what? And I even said that that happened, but I don't even know if that's happening. I made a movie called Dear White People <laughs> and I'm <laughs> kind of stepping into being like, a, I guess, like a representative for all black people, which, I, you know, no one person can be. So but, I don't even know if that's true. <laughs> Maybe it'll take me another 10 years. But the movie makes that clear. I mean, what's interesting about the movie is you don't present answers. You ask a lot of interesting questions. Yeah. None of these identities seem to fit right with these folks. You're right. I'm brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I think Robert Redford was right. That's right. And that's the end of our interview. Okay, so, great. You're awesome. Congrats on the film. Hashtag Justin's brilliant. Wait, was there an arrogant character in the movie? Because I didn't remember <laughs> that. I'm. You know what? I'm way too neurotic to have an ego like that. I, I, every time I walk into a screening of the movie, I, I think this is the one where they turn. Yeah, like, they, they figure me out. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to being an artist. This I is think. the one where they throw fruit at the screen. I don't know where <laughs> they'd find fruit. but All right. Well, speaking of extreme conflict, uh, this movie climaxes at a party that's thrown by the White Run student humor paper where attendees are supposed to basically dress up as black stereotypes, supposedly satirically, but it's obviously totally offensive. It blew our minds to find out that these kind of parties have happened multiple times on campuses in the last few years. Yeah and, yeah, and there's some people who see the movie and it, like, blows their mind that these things happen. And then there's other kids, you know, college kids that are kind of going through it now that see the movie and are like, I know it's a satire, but this is literally my day-to-day life. <laughs> and it's so shocking. And this is at institutions that you would never expect these sort of shenanigans to be going on. Exactly. And you kind of, you, I know, research these shenanigans, yes. so to speak, <laughs> as you were writing this screenplay. What is going through people's heads when they're throwing these parties? It's just a lot of ignorance as to the fact that it was even offensive. I mean, people Mm. were genuinely bewildered that anyone took offense because, you know, of course we're not racist because, you know, we have a black friend and we voted for Obama or whatever the case may be. I bought the Beyonce album. I don't know what it is, but like, you know, they 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 don't feel like they're racist because they're in this sort of closed cultural loop. And to mm-hmm. them, they're paying homage or they're celebrating or they're just kicking back and they're having fun. I mean, how many questionable Cinco de Mayo parties have we all been to? <laughs> you know, it's the same. It's the same thing. It's it, true. I get the nachos and the guacamole, but why do you have a fake mustache on, Sarah? <laughs> Speaking of bad behavior, go. we've got some questions from our audience. You ready to answer Let's these? Let's do it. All right. Here's something from Ben via our website. Ben writes, I recently moved away from the United States. Whenever I'm at a dinner party, someone always inquires about my race because of my American accent. When I reply I'm Vietnamese, my actual ethnicity, often people look shocked and will say I don't look like it and that I must be something else. How do I reply? Wow. Yeah. There's nothing more annoying than being asked, what are you? (laughs) (laughs) You know, people have asked me that question, which I think is hilarious, because it's like, you know, I'm black, obviously. But then they want to get into it, and it's like, yeah, that's the whole thing about being black, is I have no way of knowing, like, which country (laughs) the blackness comes from. But, I, I mean, I think you sort of turn it around on the asker and say, well, what are you? And when they tell you they're Italian or Irish or whatever white people say when you ask them what race they are, you know, <laughs> you have to make them defend it. <laughs> yeah. Or you, yeah, you should say, I don't think so. No, yeah, really? I don't, I don't know. know about it. I don't know about that. I don't see it. I think what's interesting about this question, too, is that Ben's like, I recently moved away from the United States. Where Ben moved, I think, has implications, right? That's crucial. If Ben's in Vietnam... And they're asking him because his accent's different? Yeah, if he moved to Vietnam, I got nothing. I, I, I won't even <laughs> pretend to have advice for that situation. But I think turning the question around is always very effective. All right. This next question comes from Yolanda in Queens, and she writes, I'm currently living in a dorm. My school is a system where rooms are assigned by lottery, and I got stuck in a double. I can't have any company without disturbing my roommate. 
One of my friends was assigned a single but doesn't need it. She has her own apartment and goes over to her significant others when she's at school. Wow. Am I justified in feeling this is unfair? Yes. You are just, you should break into her apartment and have your dates there, I think. All right. I feel like That's... no dorm situation ever is good. I was just going to say, yeah. this is just such a, it brings back such memories. Oh, same. Oh, my God. You have no idea. I oh, never, do tell. I never had a great <laughs> dorm situation. No offense to anyone I may have lived with. Where did you go um, to school? I went to school at Chapman University. Okay. And there was a lot of weed smoke in my first. <laughs> Which is fine. I just, you know, I found it difficult to do homework. There was like four of us in there. Uh, I remember one time one of my sweet mates challenged me, this blonde, blue-eyed kid, because he uh, felt he was blacker than me because he could crip walk and I couldn't. <laughs> and that was, that was an awkward moment in our shared bathroom. God, <laughs> what is wrong with people? I don't know. I think it's, you know, it's life. We're, we're thrust together. We crash into each other. It's and, part mm. of the learning experience. That's the other thing we could say is that you just deal with it and you're learning yeah. from college what you're supposed to learn, which is, you know, in life things are unfair. Which is live alone. <laughs> yeah. So there you go, Yolanda. I think the advice is to break into your friend's single. You should totally break in. Here's something from Chris in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And keep in mind, North Carolina, this person is from. Okay. Chris writes, I have a friend who says y'all constantly, and she isn't from the South. What do you think? Is that okay? <laughs> I am obsessed with this friend, whoever... Is it, it's she, right? It's, it's, it's a, a she. He's not from the South. <laughs> That's good. I, I feel like I see this more and more often. I'm not sure where that comes from. Just people saying y'all. I'm from the South, so I say y'all. Wait, doesn't it? It's a word that comes in handy, though. You guys is gender Yeah, you guys. Yeah, that's specific. not... So maybe it's just a shortcut. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, they put ketchup in their eggs in the South, too, and that was a good idea. It was. It is a good idea. Um, so maybe this is just a good idea. But it also depends on how she says it. Like, if it's a really awkward y'all and you know she's just forcing it, that is a bit irritating. Yeah. Like, hey, y'all. <laughs> Well, there are scenes in your movie where the characters at the all-white kind of privileged house are speaking <laughs> with one of the black characters, and they change their language, right? That is true. That's the worst, I have to say. Like, when, when a well-intentioned, very liberal, nice white person comes up to me and is like, what's up, bro? And I know he does not greet other people like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what? I, I get that you're trying to make me feel relaxed and comfortable in your presence. You're doing the opposite. But it's offensive and don't do that. Cool. <laughs> By the way, one other thing that you could do here is that Chris and Chapel Hill, you should start using the uh, Pittsburgh term. I'm from Pittsburgh. Okay. And the Pittsburgh version of y'all is yins. Yins? Yeah. No, no. Y-I-N-Z. No. Yep. That's... If this woman annoys Chris with y'all, then he can annoy her with yins. I don't even understand the etymology of yins. Yeah, like, you, how does it yeah, get to be yins? I think it's you ones. I think it's what you say when you have beer in your mouth and a sandwich <laughs> in your mouth at the same time. Story of my life. Chris, y'all figure it out yourselves. <laughs> this next question comes from Tish. Tish writes, my boss recently purchased a scented candle that smells like maple syrup. <laughs> we should just end right there. Done. <laughs> Done. Quit your job. Yes, yeah. exactly. You're yeah. in the right, Tish. You're in the right. The scent is very strong for an office, and it gives me a headache. Not to mention, it smells just awful. She's super <laughs> chipper and excited about her candle. Do I say something? Super chipper is the more offensive yes. part of this. About her candle. Chipper about her maple syrup candle. That, uh, oh, man. I think you passively, aggressively suggest. I think that's what you do in this situation. Mm. Suggest. Man, I have a headache. 
Must be the smell mm. of maple syrup. I think you go further. Sabotage the candle. You should break oh, the candle. You should spill totally. coffee on the candle. Or you replace the candle in the dead of night. That's a super passive aggressive move. Just suddenly it's a different candle. <laughs> what would you replace it with? I don't know. Something with a no scent. <laughs> I, I feel like anything food related I can't have as a scent in my yeah. house because yeah. I can't eat it. Like that's not right. <laughs> if I walk into my house and it smells like cookies, what is the point of that? Maybe you could just pile some aspirin on top of the candle so it can't be lit. <laughs> I think Tish needs a new job. Yeah, I think the bigger thing here is that Tish is ready to leave. And we support oh. you in that, Tish. Follow your dreams, Tish. Uh, here's our last question. It comes from Sylvia via Facebook. We don't know where she's from. This kind of has some bearing on the, sh on the film. How do you suggest correcting someone's bad grammar or incorrect pronunciation of words? Coco, one of the characters in your film, is correcting someone on the <laughs> correct use of the term weave. That's true. Um, I don't know. I feel like unless you're a school teacher, yeah. I yeah. don't know if you should, you know, I get it. I know it's annoying to some people, but language is fluid and... Wait, this is, the, we're, we're speaking to a public radio audience. Oh my God, I'm alienating everyone. Yeah, yes. this is what they do. This is like you're, you're saying their favorite hobby yes. is wrong. Please come see my movie anyway, but there's lots of incorrect grammar in my film. Can you, could you maybe guilt them into seeing your movie some other way? Maybe that'll... Well, here's the thing. If you don't see it, you're a racist. So. Oh, <laughs> thank you very much. That's the, I, that's the, sorry about that. Justin Simeon, everyone. Thanks for telling our audience how to behave. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Justin Simeon, his new film is called Dear White People. It hits theaters this weekend. And folks, if you find yourself in an etiquette minefield, mm. we're here to help navigate it. To send us a question, head to dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time for Chattering Class, where we are schooled by an expert in some party-worthy topic. The topic this week is pretty broad. It's fragrance, and our teacher is Mandy Aftel. She is an expert on scent and the author of several books, including one on the history of perfume. She is also known for making artisan fragrances and teaching folks around the world how to do the same. Her new book is called Fragrant, The Secret Life of Scent. And Mandy, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for coming. By the way, how is the scent in the studio? Is it is it pleasing? There's none. It? Yeah. There's none, which is always good. Well, let me let me ask you this. So what got you to devote a couple of decades of your life to delving into fragrances? Because I do. I think most of us in the modern world try to avoid intense smells. We go for a neutral smell. Yes, the neutral smell of modernity, which yeah. was a <laughs> wonderful quote I found and put in my book. Um, I was wanting to write a novel, and I wanted to make my main character a perfumer, and I don't know why. Hmm. And I love doing research. So I went back 100 years to do my research. And then just between smelling the ingredients and reading about them and the lore and the people and the eccentric stuff, I just <laughs> fell in love and followed my nose. Is there one sort of eccentric thing that made you go, oh, I've, I've stumbled onto a mother load? Well, just like ambergris. Actually, let's start with ambergris. You you divide your book up into five sections. Each one is devoted to what you call a rock star scent. Ambergris is one of them. We actually discussed ambergris years ago on the show because it started showing up in cocktails. It comes from a very strange place. Yeah, ambergris comes from the sperm whale. He gets this kind of indigestible mass in his body, which is in part, they think, from eating mm. cuttlefish. But, you know, it's it's mysterious in there. And he's got to get it back out. And so he poops it out. And then it tosses around on the water. 
And there were a million myths. You know, I mean, people were like blown away by this stuff. There were a million myths, like they thought it was dragon spittle. They thought it was some kind of special mushroom that grew in the ocean. They thought so many things. The stories are just incredible. And it's actually the most semi-disgusting thing that you could imagine. It is so not disgusting, though. I mean, it is the most ethereal, amazing smell. So it washes around, and there were these people in Australia last year. All right. They find this thing on the beach, and one of them thinks it's a cyst. One of them wants to put it in the car and take it home. But the other one doesn't. So they go home and it's obsessing them. So they they get basically like called back to the beach to pick this thing up, which they do. And it turns out, of course, that it's ambergris. And they sell it for a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah, it's really rare, this stuff. It's rare and it is beautiful. What would you describe the smell as? Ambergris not only smells ethereal and beautiful, it's kind of ambery, kind of warm, ambery, a little caramely, little of the ocean, a little minerally, but it has this almost alchemical effect on anything else it's with. There's just a wonderful description long ago of people putting it into chocolate, which I've tasted it in chocolate. It's phenomenal. Really? It's just transformative to everything it gets with, plus it smells divine. Uh, another chapter of the book is based around cinnamon, One of the most interesting things to me is this story that was dreamt up by the ancient Greeks to explain where it came from. It was was so exotic to them that they came up with this. It wasn't bad enough that the spices came from so far away and you risked your life and you didn't come back and whatever. They even made up stories to make it more rare. It was like (laughs) marketing copy. So they said cinnamon came from this uh, bird in the tree and they would like wave pieces of meat under the tree. (laughs) to get the bird to come out of the nest. And then in the nest was the cinnamon. So the nest would fall down and they would gather the cinnamon. This was a way to to drive up the price of cinnamon to kind of fake this backstory that made it seem super rare and amazing. Because they wanted to lie about, you know, about where it came from. They did things to keep the price up. Plus, mm. when you really think about cinnamon, it's so sad that here's the titan of the spice trade, which is, you know, become an artificial flavor. And because it's it's common and it's available, people don't really value it anymore. You actually found a kind of uh, a rare cinnamon essence. I found this very beautiful one. It was just warm and round and less pointy and sweet, but kind of a little bit hot, a little woody. Where did you find it and what makes it so different than others? I, I found it in Switzerland. It's, a, it's something called the CO2 extraction, which is done with carbon dioxide rather than distillation. Distillation is, a, is how most essential oils are gotten with either water or steam. You kind of boil the living daylights out of the material. So it's, it's kind of a little rough. With the CO2 extractions, they're often gentler and warmer, richer, kind of more true to the best thing in that aroma often. You actually spend a lot of time tracking down scents like this. What, what's maybe the rarest? The most expensive thing is oud, O-U-D, oud, or agarwood, which there's a lot of in a lot of perfumes, but it's not the real thing. Oud is, oh my God, it's so interesting. Oud is $22,000 a kilo. Now, I, I buy it by the 100 grams, so I'm not buying $22,000 a kilo. Oud is <laughs> agarwood that rots inside the tree, and it makes this amazingly, almost holy, animal-like, precious wood, complicated 
smell. And there's lots of fake oud. Really quickly, if you had any smell, only one smell for the rest of your life, what would it be? Mm, Probably ambergris. You would spend the rest of your life in a room full of something that had come out of the wrong end of oil. Without a doubt. Mandy Aftel. Her new book is called Fragrant. And Brendan, after speaking with Mandy, I was using cinnamon to cook. Okay. Couldn't stop thinking of it as powdered bird's nest. Yeah. (laughs) It actually doesn't seem like that great an advertisement to me. Ancient Greeks were strange. Anyway, people, we're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Coming up, I discuss morals with film star Joel Edgerton and grilled cheese rains down on Brendan. Hallelujah. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, I eat a sandwich which falls from the heavens. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week, it's Australian actor and screenwriter Joel Edgerton. American audiences know him best for playing the rich brute Tom in Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby. He also got raves for his role in the cult MMA movie Warrior. And this December, he stars alongside Christian Bale in Ridley Scott's biblical epic Exodus. Busy guy. But this week, you can see him star in a tense indie thriller, which he also wrote. It's called Felony. In it, he plays a good but troubled cop who one night, after almost getting shot on the job, drives home drunk... He accidentally clips a kid on a bike who goes into a coma. The cop lies about being involved in the accident and has to wrestle with his guilt. When I met with Joel this week, I asked him what inspired him to write the story. I was very interested in good people committing accidental crimes. And what fascinated me was the way people conducted themselves in the aftermath of making these mistakes. You know, I was constantly looking at newspaper articles about particularly hit-and-run crimes that involve the death of, of the victim, where otherwise normal citizens would drive home and literally hide under their bed, I guess. And I was curious about what drives people to do that. And, and also, to answer the question for myself, like wh- how would I conduct myself in that situation? Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I can't tell you 100% truthfully how I would conduct myself without having walked in those shoes. It's interesting, actually, in that I found myself being kind of put in those shoes. I, I kind of wanted your character to get away with it, mm. even though if he does, it means the legal system doesn't work and I'm essentially rooting for a corrupt police force. Yeah. What are you trying to say to us putting us in that situation? Well, I'm kind of asking the audience to really examine their own point of view on crime and punishment in the film all the different characters have their own relationship with this crime and what they feel should be the balanced punishment for that crime particularly even the character of Carl played by Tom Wilkinson is sprouting the question of whether a person may actually serve the best kind of punishment inside their own conscience rather than in some form of social justice don't wave yourself off over this what do you want five years in the neck for for nothing That's stupid. Prison is for that don't have their punishment here. Not you. That line really stood out for me. Prison is for people who don't have their punishment in here. He's pointing to his own head when he says that. Yeah, yeah, and Tom actually throws a few sort of dirty words in there as well. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it's true. I mean, you know, on one hand, you could examine 
justice and say there may be two forms of justice for the intentional criminal versus the accidental criminal. Mm-hmm. However, society doesn't really work like that, as we know. It's not fine for me to say, you deserve prison, but I don't. Yeah, that's where you become kind of a totalitarian or something. Yeah. So this movie, it really unfolds like a morality play. It is very literally about morality. And a few years ago, you co-wrote an Australian thriller called The Square that also has characters doing bad things and struggling to deal with the consequences. What focuses you on that sort of story? Between the two films, I can feel morality is something you're really struggling with. Uh, I don't know myself well enough to know whether I'm struggling with it, but it's... <laughs> It's definitely a theme I keep returning to. It's interesting, the next project that I've written, a character is wrestling with a mistake they made 20 years earlier. Wow. You're not working out guilt for some crime you committed that you're keeping secret uh, from us, are you? No. I mean, and even if I was, I probably, <laughs> I probably wouldn't tell you. Um, but I think I was raised as a young Catholic I, I definitely remember feeling strong feelings of guilt as a child with regard to s- sometimes even the most minor things. And I wonder if there's something of that that's operating within me. Sure. Also, as a as a film buff, the most fascinating movies to me were movies about deception and movies where I was watching characters lie about things with that dramatic <laughs> irony that I as an audience knew the truth and yet I was watching a character lie to another character and I always found that fascinating. As I watched the movie, it struck me how tense but also very quiet it is. And your character especially says very little. But you're mm-hmm. a writer. You're obviously a guy who's into words. Why write yourself a near wordless part? Well, I did realize I'd sort of written myself a, a tricky character who, yes, doesn't say much, but is kind of locked into this stasis, you know, which could result, I thought, at the time in a series of long faces and I was worried about <laughs> you just frown a lot well you know this I was always fascinated at drama school by the Hamlet dilemma you know which is this that Hamlet is about a character who does the opposite of what all good screenwriting and theatre writing manuals <laughs> tell you to do which is have your central character be incredibly active and here was Shakespeare writing a character who basically sat there and did nothing and this is what my character does in the movies he's shocked into his own stasis. But I was interested in that because what we started to really explore was why do we lie? Why do we cover things up? And I started to suspect that it's really grounded in this very deep human need, constant need to be liked and to be loved and not Mm -hmm. to be judged as a bad person. Do you mind if I look very quickly ahead to your forthcoming work for a second? Not at all. You play the Egyptian King Ramses in uh, yep. Ridley Scott's big biblical epic coming out in December. Biblical movies like that are so easy to push over the edge into kitsch. What was tough about that for you as an actor? Well, you know, it was sort of like being a kindergarten kid jumping into the Olympic swimming pool for the first time. <laughs> I mean, I've been on big movies, but the responsibility of playing one of the major roles, I'm saying, in a big production like that, that was one thing. And the other tricky thing is, you know, as you point out with biblical epics, the potential for kitsch, I think, lies in the fact that if you take religion out of the equation, you're asking the audience to believe a certain amount of true uh, human interaction. And then all of a sudden, one of those characters parts the Red Sea or (laughs) two of every kind of animal turn up to a boat that uh, one family has built. And sometimes that's going to land in the world of kitsch. And I, I truly believe, having seen Ridley's film, that there wasn't a single moment where I, I went, ah, oh, come on. <laughs> to be honest, I, the first time I was watching it, I was sitting there watching it with my hands over my face, which is how I usually watch 
my movies for the first time. And, and I just kind of unfurled from my tense little kind of, you know, ball. And I realized by the time the movie was over that I'd had a wonderful experience. We have two questions that we ask everyone who's a guest of honor on our show. The first question is, what question should we not ask you? Oh, usually I, the cold stare comes to any journalist who asks me deeply personal questions. Mm. You know, who are you dating or what's right. going on in your personal life? They're, they're, they're the big ones. But I, I will say what's fascinating me recently is the regurgitation of information on the internet. And I find myself quite often having to tell journalists, well, that's not exactly true. Okay, well then let's, I'm going to ask you very directly a question that you're probably sick of being asked recently. Are you yeah. going to play Obi-Wan Kenobi in a Star Wars spinoff? Aha, so <laughs> Here we go. The uh, regurgitation of information. I was asked that by one journalist who informed me that those movies were going to happen. And I said, I would love to consider being a part of that. And Which then gets reported as he's definitely going to do it. And now I'm doing it. But look, I don't care. That's fine for me because I love Star Wars fans and their speculation because I just love anybody who's passionate about anything. All right. And our second question, tell us something we don't know. I started breakdancing uh, back in the 80s. You were a breakdancer, really? Probably 86. But the reason I started that was because I had a major crush on a girl whose mother was the dance teacher. <laughs> and I was like, well, I've got to get me some of this breakdancing then. <laughs> and, uh, that is the most yeah. tortured path to a date that I've ever heard. Well, I just knew that if I was there, you know, learning the backspin and windmill, not that I quite got there, that Tiffany would be just there watching because she's waiting for her mum to finish teaching. Joel Edgerton, he wrote and stars in the thriller Felony. It's in theaters now. And Brendan, before we started taping, Joel was very amused by the button-labeled cough mm. in the studio. Yeah. That is, of course, what we press to mute our mics if we need to cough. Yeah, it's awesome. It also works on cuss words. Yep. <laughs> And now time for the main course where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. Rico, imagine living in a world where amazing meals fell from the sky. Mmm, like under a coconut tree. That, well, that could be dangerous. Yeah. I'm talking about a world where hot sandwiches gently float into your hands via parachute. So heaven, basically. Well, then we live in heaven. I've been there. Thanks to three friends from Australia who started something called Jaffle Shoots. We're really into Australians this week. They're doing cool yeah. things. Anyway, a Jaffle right. is a sandwich. Shoots are little parachutes. And how this works yeah. is at designated times, you go to their website, you PayPal them six bucks, they tell you a time and a place to show up, and they parachute you a sandwich from above. Glory. Yeah. When I caught yeah. up with one of the partners, Adam Grant, I asked him the obvious question. When you came up with this, were you high? Um... Maybe the the idea was perfected and sharpened with... Um, there was a lot of beer, I'll say that. Do you have a background in cooking or anything, or is this just kind of a fun stunt? I guess my background in cooking is working at a pizza shop when I was about 13 or 14. So, I mean, technically, yes, but... I mean, I've always described Jaffle Shoots as a parachute company rather than a sandwich company. We, we put a lot of thought into the sandwiches, but we put more thought into the parachutes because at the end of the day, the parachutes can't fail, the sandwiches kind of can. So there are two parts of this project, 
the Joffle and the shoots. And for an American, the word Joffle is really bizarre. So can you explain what a Joffle is? So a Joffle is, it's basically a grilled cheese, um, but sealed around the edges and kind of separated through the middle to cut it into a triangle. Um, I don't think it's a uniquely Australian thing, but it's definitely something kind of ingrained in Australian culture. The word Joffle, is that unique? The Joffle refers to the Joffle iron, which is the traditional way of cooking the sandwich, which is a huge metal clamp that you would fit the sandwich into and then um, hold over a campfire, I suppose. Um, and then in the 70s, Breville came along and created this electronic Jaffle maker that we use today. And it's, and it's spelled like waffle, but it's Jaffle. Yeah, waffle with the J. Is the Jaffle almost an ideal food for this sort of delivery system? Because with the edges sealed, the things can't slide out of it. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so you can't really do a pizza. I mean, you could do a pizza slice, but um, logistically it would be a little bit more difficult. A hot dog would be a disaster. Tell me about how many Jaffle Shoot events you've had, and it works like a pop-up, correct? Uh, we've been around for about 14 months now. Um, I've kind of lost count, but I imagine we've done probably around 16, 17, 18 um, drops. Um, of different sizes, some of those are up to 150 Jaffle Shoots. Some of those are just one, um, but quite a few. And yeah, we call it pop-up float down so we never operate in the same space twice um we'll pop up in a new spot in the city put down an x drop sandwiches via parachute for an hour or so and then disappear into the night now is that because this probably isn't legal right you know i've never really looked into it kind of out of fear of what i might discover have you encountered any negative critiques of of the joffle shoot very few actually i think um we put a lot of thought into how we describe what it is that we do and we certainly don't take it seriously and we don't ever want anyone to think that we're taking it seriously. It's all in good fun. So there's the joffle, which is the sandwich, and there's the shoot. This is like a, a circle the size of a manhole of orange plastic with a hole in the middle. Can you ex explain what I'm looking at here? It's just a garbage bag that we've cut into a circular shape. We got these designs off uh, kind of hobbyist websites put, uh, set up by um, ex-military men that make bottle rockets in their spare time. <laughs> we kind of like took their designs that are quite complex and simplified them and worked out how we could do them um, using materials that you find at a hardware store. This one, it's all it's quite crinkled because we've recycled it a few times. Um, we'll put a coat hanger or something downstairs and ask people to recycle their parachutes. There's tape on each... Is that just holding it together, this red tape on the edges? Yeah, yeah. So the string would go in here. It looks like fishing line. Yeah, kind of fishing line. It's not as good as fishing line. It's quite thick. So we just like line that up along the edge like that and stick it down with tape. And that's it. Have you ever thought about edible shoots I was thinking made of fruit roll-ups or something like that like fruit leather that is a bad idea but I mean it's the kind of bad idea that might work he who lives in glass houses should not throw stones even if they have parachutes right. I'm sorry I didn't mean to be rude all right so can you make me a sandwich and then throw it off a roof to me sure I've got some stuff in the fridge so through the magic of radio you've built our sandwiches and they're about to be Joffled? Yeah, that's right. So they're just uh, regular sandwiches, but buttered on the outside. That's to stop it from sticking and to make it look beautiful, I think. So let's hear the, the joffle sound. All that fat and cheese. It's going to be so good. All right, well, let's go do it. So now I'm outside waiting for Adam to uh, <laughs> drop a grilled cheese on me with a little parachute. <laughs> oh, here we go. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, I missed it. There it is. All right. <laughs> My joffle has arrived. I'm going to uh, wait for Adam to join me, and then we'll eat our joffles.
You want to grab one and, and join me in having sure. a bite here? How do you... Oh, oh, I dropped my shoot. <laughs> shoot down. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Sorry about that. All right, here we go. I'm about to eat my jawful. How do you, cheers? Is that, that's what you say in Australia, yeah, right? We can do that. Cheers. Cheers. So a little soggy, but good. I, and it was so much fun getting to it. It almost replicates like chasing down a wild animal on the savanna and tackling it, and then finally getting to bite into it. You know? <laughs> yeah, maybe that's key to jaffle shoot success. <laughs> have you ever had any? Ne never any jaffle shoot hostility from passersby? Um. Not that I've ever seen. We did hit a police car once, and they did stop, and they did get out of the car, and they looked up, and they saw what was happening, and then I guess there are bigger fish to fry on Friday night, um, so we got by. And there I go. It's just the hipsters again. So, by the way, Rico, Adam is full of ideas. Sounds it. He also runs the Second Chance Date Curation Agency. It provides backstories for people who've met online but don't want to admit it to other people. <laughs> <laughs> He's like a twee spy. <laughs> That's right. Funny. He'll also provide a chamber pop group to play in the background when you're sad. <laughs> it's an amazing awesome. service. That's the dinner party download for this week, everybody. Uh, Jackson Musker is our associate producer. Thanks to engineers Jeff Peters and Daniel Ramirez. Our amazing new interns are Ed Morales and Christiana Cabal. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. As always, you can find the DPD for free on iTunes or at dinnerpartydownload.org. We posted a bonus online-only show this week with comedian Moshe Kasher and comedy duo Garfunkel and Oates. If you're not signed up, you're missing out. It's a good one. Yep, and now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to hear on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. L.A. indie duo Foxygen have been playing ramshackle pop together since they were 15. Their new album's called And Star Power. Here's a new track from it called How Can You Really? Bon appétit. In the morning, I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for... Ah! I spilled my coffee! Oh, that burns! What the... Man, good thing ah. we've got that button.